Okay, today's readings are Psalm 20 and Luke 16, verses 10 to 15. They can be found on pages 508 and 965 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. Now moving on to Luke 16, verses 10 to 15 on page 965. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The word of the Lord. In prayer with me, our gracious God, we've come this morning from different places and different experiences, and uh, we might feel very alone in our experience. We might uh, wonder if anyone else would understand us. Some of us uh, come and we are, we're down in the dumps. And others of us come and we feel today like we're on top of the world. We come uh, full of doubts and questions. We come sometimes with joy and gratitude for what you've done in our lives. Um, Some of us come very sure and some of us come very unsure and the truth is we're all in the same boat. We're more of a mess than we care to admit. And we're only brought out of it through your love and your grace. And in this uh, time, we look to your grace because your story tells us over and over in the Bible that you move towards broken lives. That that's in your DNA. That's in you as a God to do this instinctively. Move towards the brokenness. Take it on yourself. Patch up, reconcile, bring us home. We look to that kind of grace. We long for it and need it for its change and uh, its ability to change our lives. We pray that you bring it to us this morning. May it settle our hearts and settle our souls. In Christ's name, amen. Um, What are you counting these days? What are you counting? The, um, not surprisingly, I'll start with something related to the 
NBA, basketball. Um, season is in full swing, still early, but there is one way to tell who's good. If you're a basketball player, there's a way to tell if you're doing well or not. You can look at the, um, something called the player efficiency rating. Um, some basketball nerds combined with some mathematics and created a formula where they take every possible aspect of the game and they put it in this grinder and they churn out a number. Um, so I don't really understand it, and most basketball fans don't, but it's called the player efficiency rating, the PER, and it's just a number. And you can look at that number and say, that's, if you're a player, you can say, that's how good I am. Um, in, right now, it's early in the season. People's, the other number, the percentage of wins versus losses, those don't really matter yet. We're so early in on it that this is something that you can look at and say, ah, those are who are the good players this year. So um, this one player, maybe you've never heard of, or maybe you totally have, his name's Anthony Davis. He has this, you know, this incredibly high PER number right now. He's just playing incredibly. Um, DeMarcus Cousins of the Kings is up there, too. He's got the fifth or sixth highest PER rating. But you don't care. So um, um, some of you do, but two or three of you care. But... Um, what are you counting if you're not counting that? You know, some men, men are more likely to do this. Some men are in the weight room and they're counting the pounds uh, on, you know, for the bench press or whatever else. Uh, women would be more likely in the morning to be counting the pounds on the scale. Glad you laughed. So for some people, it's not a laughing matter. Um, if you hang out with runners, what are they counting? They're counting the minutes per mile, right? Isn't that what we talk about? How many, you know, what's, was that a nine-minute mile? Was that a ten-minute mile? What was I averaging? Students are counting their, their GPA, you know, is it a 3.9? Is it a 4.0? You can even in some places get a 4.1. I don't know how that's possible. Extra credit. Some people, unfortunately, have been counting, in their life, they've been counting the number of times they've experienced prejudice or racism, and they've lost track. Some of you might be counting the number of friends and you might be really discouraged that you can count on one hand. Others of you might be very puffed up that you can lose track of that number. You might be counting the number uh, of the amount of money that you make at your job and you might count that and you might also count the number of what the person who's less productive than you makes and that might make you feel really angry or frustrated. (laughs) Um, You might be counting the number of years that you've been married. You might be counting the number of years you've been unmarried. My kids count the number of pancakes that they can eat in one sitting or the (laughs) number of pieces of pizza that they can have on Friday movie night. We're all counting things. I count things. You know, you might be counting dollars. You might be counting accomplishments. You might be counting um, possessions or popularity markers or success benchmarks. The truth is, as we do this counting, the data is pregnant with meaning, spiritual meaning, meaning that has to do with where your allegiance is, where your heart is, where your trust is. And you and I know that the numbers can become um, powerful enough that inwardly they're either, those numbers on a day-to-day basis are either condemning you or redeeming you. They can utterly deflate your sense of self-worth or they can falsely inflate your sense of self-confidence. Your spiritual highs and lows are often um, really tied and inextricably tied to some of those things that you're counting. 
There's no way around it. What you're counting tells us something about what you're counting on. And all of that is influenced by the world around us, which tells us to count certain things. And we're assured that certain things can be counted on. And so you better be counting those things. And so this is so influential, actually, that as we open up the Bible and read Psalm 120, we look at it instinctively with, and we get the completely wrong message from the psalm as we read it. Because our culture tells us to count lots of things related to uh, consumerism and individualism. And so we look at this passage and it says, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And it goes on, especially you get to verse 4 and 5. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant you all of your requests. And if you just kind of are opening up the Bible from the lens of our culture, you say, I really like the Bible. (laughs) The Bible wants me to have all those things that I want, right? And um, we don't even catch that we're missing some of the dialogue partners in this psalm. We're missing what's really happening in this psalm because there are... There is a king, and then there are the king's people. And this is actually, the more you look at it, you see that these are the people. Like, who's talking here when it says, may the Lord answer you? Well, those are the people coming together, and they're lifting up their voices, praying and, and kind of before God, but also before their king, and they're saying, may God answer you, O king. And what does he need to answer them about? Well, you look at verses 6 and 9, Um, where it talks about victory to his anointed. That's the king. And then verse 9, Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. This is a war prayer. This is a war song. The people are coming together, and they're scared out of their minds because there's an enemy. And so they're, they're lifting up their voice in utter crisis. Survival is at stake. And so they're asking for victory against this enemy that's threatening their livelihood and threatening their future. This is a different psalm than what we thought it was when we just opened it up and started seeing those nice things about God giving us our desires. And as ancient Israel addresses this issue of the enemy and the hope that the king, that God will answer the king's request and they'll get victory, they are... In a sense, in the ancient Near East, they're a handicapped nation because in Deuteronomy 17, when God said, here's how I want you to live in the promised land. Here's how I want you to behave. And there's a section that's entitled in these Bibles around you, the king. And it talks about what kind of king they should have if they're going to have a king. Um, And he says, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. It's sort of like cutting off a lifeline in the ancient Near East because apparently they, they relied heavily for their survival, their cultural outlook, their um, conventional survival plan involved horses and chariots. This is a way to make sure that you survived and that your people had a place in this world. And God intentionally limits that. Don't depend on that. And so you see them echoing this And sort of putting forward uh, their faith tentatively, but definitely putting it up there to God and saying, 
In verse 7, this is where we start to see what this psalm really is about. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And we don't even, we can't even grasp how difficult it was to voice that and really believe that and, and live behind that. This is a conventional survival plan of the ancient Near East. Chariots, horses, survival. That's what you do. That's what you have. That's how you get by. And in fact, uh, a translation that I think, is, that I know from just looking at this this week and reading up on it is a very valid translation and is one that really, I think, works for us today is to, is to, to use the words, some are counting chariots and some are counting horses. But we're counting on the name of the Lord, our God. That almost gets more to the literal Hebrew word, record, recount. Some recount horses, we recount the name of the Lord, our God. This is actually a prayer that is inviting you to see yourself as someone, once you've met God, once you've understood who God is, how gracious God is, how God operates in our life and in our world and what it means to follow God, it invites you to see yourself as someone who says, okay, what are my culture's conventional um, survival plans? What am I told by my culture? What am I told to pursue? What am I told I'll be okay if? This will be the good life, you know, the American dream perhaps. And then to be kind of group of people who says, as tentatively and as scary as it is to find ways to say, no, I'm putting those aside. I'm going I'm I'm to turn myself away from that and go and just trust in God. Um, the conventional survival plan is not the way that God operates and it's not the way that God brings your survival about. He topples the enemy with other methods and it doesn't even really fully become clear how this all works and how God's going to do this and become you know, definitively the God in our lives who we can trust on to topple the enemy with other methods until it comes clear in Jesus himself. Because with Jesus, he came and he saved in weakness. He had no money to count. He, was, he had no weapons to count. He, he didn't even have any allies or friends in the end to count. And yet, the story of the gospel is he wins. He wins our spiritual survival for good. There's a way that this is said in uh, the New Testament in the letter to the Colossians um, that basically when he forgave our sins on the cross and, and in a sense no longer counted your sins against you. It says in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's a, that's a fascinating flip that happens there that we need to stew on once in a while if you're pursuing who this Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian. That as he goes to the cross, as he goes to a a death tool, and as he, in, in all eyes of all cultural lenses of all times, you look at it and you go, he's failing miserably. And right there, what is happening is he's disarming the powers and authorities and making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by 
the cross. It's completely backwards. His survival plan, his way of toppling the enemy is completely different than the ways that we pursue. There's an, uh, an old hymn, I think it's printed in your worship guide, it simply says it like this, Fulfilled is now what David told in true prophetic song of old, how God the heathen's king should be, for God is reigning from the tree. God is reigning from the tree. He's, reigning. He's the king on the cross. Another writer that I read put it this way, the cross, speak, kind of speaking a prayer to God, the cross you carry inevitably becomes a brilliant banner of triumph. How, does, how do you live into that kind of victory? How do you absorb that victory into your life? How do you buy into the fact that, you're, that everything that you really absolutely need is already available to you and has been won for you there is a great victory that's been won for your spiritual survival and it happened on the cross 2,000 years ago and it's already done and you can live into that. You can receive it. You're invited in. God is this God who says, I'm going to make a victory happen on your behalf. I'm going to do it in a way no one expects and I'm inviting all of you in to the winning team. I'm going to invite you all in. The battle, the key battle is already won. You may still be fighting battles in your life of faith but the key battle is already won. There's no doubt about where this is all going. How do you enter into that? In the Greek Orthodox Church, I learned this recently, when you become a member, and I like this practice, it goes way, way back, when you become a member of the Greek Orthodox Church, there's a part of the ceremony uh, in a worship service where you three times renounce the ways of Satan, the ways of evil. Um, I think some of the wording is, I I renounce Satan and all his pumps. Um, and, and then what you do is you're given the chance to spit. <laughs> to literally, in the service, spit on the ways of Satan. On the way of evil. I kind of like that. I like, I, you know, I don't sit around very often thinking about ways that we here at, at City Life could do more spitting um, <laughs> publicly. But... I do like that there's might be ways, it's so difficult for us, right, to enter into this and to renounce and turn from these survival plans and go this way, um, kind of in the victory of Christ. How do you step into that? I like that you might do some things physically to sort of state where you stand and where you're headed and, and kind of get used to saying, no, I'm in this direction. And later on in the service, we, we do have one way that we do that when we look to the cross of Jesus and these elements here, and you'll have a chance um, to come forward and to receive and to walk, you know, you kind of get up and you go somewhere. I like that because I like that way of doing communion a little better than just passing something around. It gets you a little more like, no, this is, I'm going in this direction. And that means that I'm not going in a lot of other directions, quite frankly. And a lot of those other directions are the survival plans of our cultures, of our culture that just kind of have a grip on us, quite frankly, I feel like. Um, and one of those really is the, um, the view of finances and money that our culture has. And we kind of feel all wrapped up in the American dream and stability, financial stability, retirement, and what you're going to do, and ways of getting ahead. I mean, there's all kinds of research now. Um, Thanks to Sam for an article he sent me this week that has a whole bunch of the cool new research on why it's bad to be rich. Um, 
Why? why um, so there's all these. I mean, you can look at the data. You can look at the research about the deterioration of people the more money they have, especially like ethical deterioration. So you got the studies that say people driving expensive cars are four times more likely to cut cut in front of other drivers than drivers in cheap cars. You got the same kind of little tweak on that study. The drivers in cheap cars. Uh, all respected the pedestrian's right of way in one study, whereas the drivers in expensive cars ignored the pedestrians 46.2% of the time. It's like zero versus almost half. It's just incredible. There's another study where upon leaving the laboratory testing room, the subjects passed a big jar of candy. The richer the person, the more likely he was to reach in and take the candy from the jar and ignore the big sign on the jar that said, the candy was for the children who passed through the department. <laughs> Literally taking candy from children. I mean, some of this stuff is really just disturbing. Um, the UCLA neuroscientist named Keely Mouchatel has published an interesting paper showing that wealth quiets the nerves in the brain associated with empathy. Just show it on a brain scan. So uh, one quote in this article, it's a, it's a review actually of a book about billionaires, says, as you move up the class ladder, you are more likely to violate the rules of the road, to lie, to cheat, to take candy from kids, to shoplift, and to be tight-fisted in giving to others. I mean, that's, it's the kind of uh, research that should scare us immediately out of any pursuit of you know, the American dream and climbing the ladder. It should immediately begin to peel the grip of the money myth uh, as it's gripping our hearts. And yet, it doesn't. Those studies are replete, they're all over the place, and yet it doesn't seem to be doing much good. Um, what did seem to do some good was, uh, and this happens throughout the Christian church, but some of you know this, this little story of when after Jesus' death and resurrection and the beginning of the movement around Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and God's grace spreading around, then there's this little, little vignette of what was happening in the community in the book of Acts chapter 4. It says, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't like that picture in the Bible. And I think the truth is there was a concentrated experience in that community that within this Jesus movement, within the Christian faith, the battle for survival has been so thoroughly won. There's the battle for your future. The triumph has been so thoroughly given to you and set on your lap and awarded to you. And your spiritual survival is just totally secure. So you begin to see if this is experienced in, especially, you know, ricocheting off of each other and many people experiencing it, you begin to see unusual acts, acts that don't make sense, things that don't make sense in all of our culture survival plans. Things like, throughout the Christian movement, things like voluntary uh, celibacy, uh, vows of chastity or voluntary financial struggle which is what seems to be happening in Acts chapter 4. In, in Acts chapter 4, the reason given is very simple. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all 
that. It's the reason God's grace. God's grace is so powerfully at work that you begin to do things that don't make any sense by our culture's standards. And if things like that aren't beginning to happen, aren't beginning to look even possible or make sense to you, then it just speaks to the richness of God, of the rich experience of Christ's victory not having yet seeped into places it needs to seep into our lives. And don't let that discourage you. I'd say just let that entice you. Let that entice you with the fact that there is a deep, deep experience of God's treasure, of God's richness that is completely possible for you to experience. It's there for you to increasingly grow into. There's cracks of your life that need to be opened up and that God will continue to open up and he'll bring his grace into. And it'll continue to speak to the survival plans that you've been buying into most and show you that actually everything's already okay. And your experience of that grace of God can actually begin to peel the grip off of your heart of some of the things that are right now most distracting for you. And actually, in a sense, choking and keeping you from growing spiritually. Things that are most compelling to you now, but you know, you know, you hear some of these words about Jesus and the gospel and forgiveness and grace, and you know these things in your life shouldn't be so compelling. You know you shouldn't be so tied to them. And you can be assured that as God's grace comes into your life, and as he brings it into your heart, that those things actually lose their pull and they lose their grip. So keep letting God in. Keep trusting his ability to satisfy you. Keep um, assuming that he has your journey handled, even if it just doesn't look like it right now at all. (laughs) Because I sense in this psalm, actually, one last observation on it, Lord, give victory to the king. And then the last line, Answer us when we call. Like, you get really sense like the sort of like tentative confidence, <laughs> right? Um, we are, we've, we have not. We could have gone and got more chariots. We didn't. Answer us when we call, you know. And that's what life might feel like for you right now in a lot of ways. And that's what it's going to feel like to, you know, that's what the, it felt like in Acts chapter 4 when people were selling off their extra property that they had spent their life chasing after. Culture said, That's the way to survive. It's going to feel terrible. It's going to feel incredible. It's a tentative kind of trust in God. But adapt the counting system of the Bible. Record and recount the act of Jesus on the cross on your behalf where your brokenness and your sin stops being counted against you. And what ends up counting is what we, uh, the words we spoke um, assuring us during our confession time. The words that are most attributed to the name of God in Scripture. How do you trust in the name of the Lord our God? In the Old Testament, there's, a, there's some phrases and some words attached to the name of God. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Count on that. Let's pray. Dear God, help us uh, so much as we seek to follow you in our lives. Whether we hear these words as brand new and unusual, or we hear them and we just, you know, we've been attempting.
to shift the allegiances of our life for years and years. It doesn't seem to get any easier. May your grace be what makes the difference. May your Holy Spirit at work in us. Making grace come alive. Making you come alive. Making your love seep into places and blossom and bring fruit in ways they haven't yet. We pray for this and we pray that it may be seen. We may see it in others. We may experience it together. And that our journeys of shifting our allegiances from our culture's survival plan may be um, ricocheting off each other in joyful celebration of a whole new path that's possible to live because of the victory in the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.